0: Welcome to Aftershock, a new series of podcasts from The Spectator on life after the pandemic with me, Isabel Hardman. In each episode, we will look at a different issue from the NHS to schools, mental health and how our towns are changing now more people are working remotely. I'm going to speak to experts, people on the front line and those most affected by the issues covered and we'll try to come up with some solutions to the damage wrought by COVID. I do hope you enjoy listening. English Education Secretary settling into the job.
1: And now it's my turn, my turn to make sure that the opportunities that transform my life are available to every child in every corner of our great country.
0: He's got plenty to grapple with. British school children have had 18 months of disruption to their education, with classrooms only just starting to return to normal now. No exams, little contact with friends and fewer chances for teachers to spot pastoral problems. This pandemic has had a profound effect on many children. I'm Isabel Hardman and in this podcast I'll be asking how children have been affected by months of homeschooling, bubbles and repeated self-isolation and what happens now. It's been a strange few months for young people. Hello, um, good morning, my name is Daria Brunescu, I am a year 10 student.
2: I'm Kane Gent, I'm in year 11.
0: It was hard when we didn't have our teachers with us, we didn't have online lessons, nothing was really planned. To
2: be honest, I actually preferred it, not being in the class, because I can just concentrate on myself.
0: I think it's good that it happened because it essentially protected everyone, so we tried to stop the spreading of corona as fast as we could and if it meant that schools had to close schools had to close it's out of my
2: hands but i've got to just try and do the best that i can
0: you were just listening to the voices of some of the young people who are supported by the charity leicestershire cares of course some children have found it easier than others james scales is the head of education policy at the center for social justice think tank he talked me through who has been the hardest hit by nearly two
2: years of disrupted education.
0: So, James, just talk us through what has happened to schoolchildren during lockdown.
2: Sure. Thanks, Isabel. The first thing to say is that uh, the most disadvantaged pupils face a barrage of adversity. They existed, those things, before the pandemic. Uh, they've all been exacerbated by the pandemic. So just to give you a, a flavour of what I'm talking about, what we found at the CSJ... So firstly, children are disengaging or more children are disengaging from school uh, at a frightening pace. So we know that pre-pandemic around 60,000 pupils were severely absent. And by that, I mean they missed 50 percent or more of their school sessions. And that's now growing, we think, uh, to around 93,500 pupils, which is an astonishing rise. And, and you p- perhaps even more concerningly, the biggest driver of that is primary schools. So we, we've seen a doubling of the rate of severe school absence uh, in primary schools. Then, and, and sort of s- slightly linked, I guess, but, but, but a separate problem, really, elective home education is spiralling as well. Now, I should say that, you know, for most people who, who choose to go down this route, they make it work. But we, we have done a lot of research uh, in, the, in the school exclusion space. And some of the evidence that we've heard there is that, in some cases, parents aren't necessarily taking their kids off role in a voluntary manner. Sometimes it's an element of coercion, according to the people that we've heard from. Um, and we're really concerned about those people getting the right support. And if you look at the last year or so, you've seen a spike uh, of around 20,000. So we think the overall figure is about 75,000 now, but we can't be sure. And the reason we can't be sure uh, is because the government doesn't collect robust statistics uh, in this area. So that figure is based loosely on a series of FOIs done to local authorities. So the figure could could well be higher. So as I said, you know we, we don't know for certain what's driving each of these things, but, but we, we're really concerned that there, there are some blind spots there and that we need to have a, a much better sense of what's going on uh, where, where there are sort of more nefarious cases. Thirdly, the attainment gap. So there's been a lot of coverage about this recently uh, in the press. I mean, we know that before the pandemic, there was already an attainment gap of 18.4 months. Um, so that's the difference in average GCSE grades between disadvantaged learners on the one hand and all of their uh, non disadvantaged peers on the other. So it was already strikingly high. And all of the evidence suggests that that may well, that that is likely to stretch even further if we don't uh, intervene urgently. So a number of studies have been done uh, during the pandemic, and they point towards a learning loss more generally, but a more acute one, specifically in relation to disadvantaged pupils. So we're worried that that might get even worse. Mental health problems, so there's been all sorts of studies done in this, in this area. Probably the most reliable um, series of statistics that we've seen are NHS-derived, um, and they show that the, the rate of probable mental disorders amongst children aged 15 to 16 rose from 1 in 9 in 2017 to 1 in 6 in July 2020. And the implications of that are that a lot more children under 18 it's like they'll they'll need new or additional mental health support as a consequence of the pandemic. So the 1.5 million figure I just mentioned, that was the Centre for Mental Health that calculated that particular figure. And then it's not just mental health, it's physical health as well. So pre-pandemic, we knew that one in five young people uh, was already obese by the age of 17. That's actually a a bigger problem for more deprived areas and disadvantaged communities. To give you a flavour of that, um, children in year six who live in the most deprived areas are almost twice as likely to be obese. Uh, as those living in, in, in the least deprived areas. And we think, we don't know if sure, we haven't seen the, the statistics, but we think that might have got worse than last year. And the reason for that is that there's a YouGov poll in to suggest that 69% of parents uh, said their children have become less active during the pandemic. We already spend about £6 billion a year on obesity-related illnesses. Uh, obviously, we, we want to avoid spending more. And uh, more importantly, we want to avoid the human costs associated with, with a spike in obesity. And then, lastly, I'll probably mention youth crime as well. So, we already knew prior, prior to COVID, uh, about 27,000 children already self identified as gang members. And uh, although we don't have robust statistics at this stage, the anecdotal evidence that, that we've heard so far suggests that, um, that the conditions that we've seen during the pandemic have lent themselves. Uh, more to, to to gang exploitation of vulnerable pupils. So we're really concerned that that uh, may have gone up as well. So that just gives you gives you a, a flavour of the different kind of elements of adversity that we've been looking at. So let's
0: just talk about some of the statistics you started off with about children missing from uh, schools, whether it's due to home education or, or other reasons and the attainment gap widening that you mentioned as well. A lot of these problems, uh, it might be easy to assume, would start to dissipate as we unlock, as life goes back to normal, as parents go back to work, or realise perhaps that home education is, uh, uh, over the long term, extremely difficult to do. Or are we stuck with these problems, with this widening attainment gap, forever?
2: Yeah, um, good question. So I I think that the thing we're most concerned about is is the compound uh, damage effect. Of, of this, so we, we know, for instance, on the persistent absence front, that um, for every percentage rise of unauthorized absence, a child is one percent more likely to be excluded from school, and there are various reasons why that is the case. The other element uh, you mentioned was the attainment gap. I I mean, the government has uh, introduced a very encouraging package tuition support, which w- which we very much supported, and in short. It centers on small group tuition, which has a very, very strong evidence base. You can, you can really see a lot of development gains very quickly and, and the, the, all sorts of, of, of trials that, that substantiate that. So we're very confident that that will bring, bring a return. But we have some reservations about how, how you would go about entrenching that more permanently. So the program itself is great, but obviously it's transient. I guess our question from a public policy perspective, if, if we know that this intervention works, why weren't we doing more of that beforehand? Because we know we already had an 18-point month attainment gap at GCSE level. So for me, there's an issue of recovery, and then there's an issue of actually uh, eroding the gap that pre-existed COVID in the first place. And I think it looks like we, we, we can claw back a substantial element of, of learning loss through things like small group tutoring. But what I would like to see happen is for us to embed that more permanently afterwards and actually make it inroads into the problem that pre existed COVID. And I think there are are various ways you could do that. Uh, The Education Endowment Foundation has a whole suite of evidence based tools that schools can use to to support uh, particularly disadvantaged pupils to make progress. And so I think there's there's a broader question about how we collectively use the pupil premium, how much of that is going on those evidence based uh, interventions. And, of course, there's always an issue for the Treasury. I mean, are we putting enough money into the system to support that longer-term education vision? I know that a number of studies were done to try and quantify the economic loss that uh, is likely to follow from, from the lost learning that we've seen. I mean, I've seen anything from about £100 billion to even a trillion, uh, even if you took the more conservative of, of those models. Um, I think it's fair to say that, you know, even from an economic Perspective, it, it is worth putting in a substantial amount of investment in order to avoid that. And of course, you know, the thing that we're most concerned at the CSJ about is, is the human cost here. And I've, I've already um, gone through some of the issues that, that, that we're most concerned about.
0: And the work that you're doing has come up with a number of different solutions. Just explain what those are to us.
2: Thank you. Yes, I mean, I think we think there needs to be a multifaceted response here. And that both means to the, uh, the point on recovery, but also. A longer term uh, plan when it comes to education and, and reducing the attainment gap and so w- broadly speaking we, we, we've been looking at three different things so we were very supportive of the of the national um, tutoring program as I said the evidence base of that is very strong uh, we're confident that 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 will bring really encouraging returns so that that's the first part and that's very much in motion and, and, and we very much support that so the second thing that we've been looking at is, is how you move into the really highly disengaged space because, you know, you can have a world-class tutoring system, but if obviously if people aren't turning up to school, then they're not going to be enrolling in, in, into, that, into that support programme. So I think we need a separate strategy to support uh, pupils who have become highly disengaged for lots of complex reasons. Um, and I mentioned earlier on that the stats that we've crunched at the CSJ suggest that we've seen a sharp rise from six, around 60,000 to around ninety-three and a half thousand of pupils who are now severely absent and that means that they are missing 50 percent or more of sessions in school so i think we we definitely need a bespoke strategy to to support those pupils there's some good work going on through the the department for education's react team so that broadly speaking that's about encouraging multi-agency working to get in getting local um, agencies support agencies to work together to to sort of find out where these pupils are and how they can support them but I think we need something to wrap around that something that's more intensive and and personalized I think the evidence shows that um, if if you really want to re-engage people who are struggling with all sorts of personal adversities you really need that more intensive um, support so some sort of key worker model that, that brings in the kind of expertise that you might see social workers develop uh, something like that so that's something we're looking at and then the third element I think is uh, and this really speaks to to the point I made about having something more permanent it just goes beyond recovery we've been looking at the merits of 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 elongating the the school day I know that Sir Kevin Collins mentioned that in uh, in his recovery program I think it's something we, we very much support there's obviously the question about what you do with that time. Um, I think uh, obviously we need, we need a, re- a recovery package that addresses um, academic learning loss. But I think we also would like to see a strong uh, enrichment element. So there's lots of evidence to show that um, enrichment activities, so, you know, sports, arts, drama and the rest of it c- can address quite a few. I mean, they, they won't fully tackle, but they will they will mitigate a lot of the issues that I, I mentioned earlier on. So just to give you a few examples of that, I mentioned that uh, disengagement is an issue at the moment it's rising so there's, there's an evidence base there that suggests that if you build a nice big enrichment broad enrichment program that can help sort of bring people's back into the fold and um, there are all sorts of soft skills that you can develop that we know are important for people to, to access the job market and do well things that we know that employers groups um, see lacking at the moment so things like self-efficacy emotional and social skills team building non-cognitive skills Um, So we we, we would love to see an offer that allows pupils, particularly disadvantaged pupils, to get that rounder education that their non-disadvantaged peers routinely get. Um, And we think that should be part of a, a longer term strategy.
0: James's point about those lost children is one that still hasn't made its way into the mainstream debate about education. The focus until this point has been on exam grades, not kids who are barely in the classroom at all.
3: So I'm Jan Appleton, the director of Eagles Nest Project, which is an alternative provision charity that works with young people that can't effectively engage in mainstream education, trying to get them back on track
0: and engaged in that education. Jan Appleton works with children at the very edge of the education system and knows all about how hard some of them have found this pandemic.
3: So actually we continued to operate face-to-face with young people coming into centre every day. We were really grateful about that. Once the Prime Minister had made it very clear that vulnerable young people would need to continue with their provision, that actually helped to really clarify things for us. All of the young people we worked with would fall into one of those vulnerable categories, sometimes more than one. And so we remained front-facing. That meant there was a lot of risk assessment to do And also that whilst we were saying we would remain open, we knew there was a work to do in persuading parents and families that we could keep their young people safe and that it was in the best interest of their whole family for the young people to attend. That wasn't full time, but students were with us for anything from a day to three days a week throughout that whole initial school closure period.
0: And was it difficult to persuade the parents and some of the students that that it was safe? Did you have a lot who weren't turning up to begin with, for instance?
3: To be honest, the attendance was fantastic from the start. We work with a range of young people. They would almost all have a social worker. That might be because they're on a safeguarding plan. It might be because they are looked after. Or it could be that they're post-adoption young people and that still have a social worker all of those young people would enjoy the opportunity to get out. I think they saw it as a privilege, actually, because for other young people, they really weren't able to do that. Um, But they also were... I think their families recognised that the break was good for everyone in the house. And So, actually, there were some young people for whom... You know, risk assessment was done on, on an individual basis, and there were some young people for whom it was sort of agreed between home and the professionals involved that it would be better for them not to attend but for the majority it was quite easy and quite a quick process really to I think it is about the language that you use and parents recognising that we were there to support them during this time.
0: And what impact has the pandemic more widely had on those young people?
3: So I think during the first lockdown, actually, they were really appreciative of the opportunities to come in and do some face to face work. There's no question that um, for those young people that are not looked after, there were many for whom electronic devices were not readily available at home. So they weren't able to engage as effectively as some with the learning that was being put in place. I think schools were initially under a huge pressure to kind of catch up and implement those systems and certainly for some of them coming to a facility to do some day-to-day education was a lot easier than it would have been for them to access things online. Yeah I mean that's a, that's definitely been a huge challenge for some of our families and young people. For some of them because they came their mental health remained more stable than it would have been perceived it would remain would be otherwise unfortunately we had other young people where for various reasons they decided not to come those were you know universal decisions that were always made with families and social workers but but those young people found it very difficult to get back into routine in September and actually we've seen a huge uplift in the number of referrals we've had since September from young people that are now finding it well, they would say they're finding it impossible to go back to school. We're working with a number of young people who attended for the first day in September and have not been back since. One of those young people has not left his house since that time, which is obviously significant. Uh, And when you talk to him about why and about whether he wants to go back to school again, he talks about that first day in September as quite a traumatic experience for him. The rules that were in place, the routes that he had to follow around the school the one-way systems because he's an already anxious young person that was just too much and And at the moment it's flipped a switch that means he is unable to consider the possibility of going back to education and we're working to support him in that but you know we're a long way on from September already that's a lot of education that he's missed and he's not alone we're working with a number
0: of young people in similar situations. So they don't see school as being a, a sort of Safe place at the moment?
3: No, I think we know scientifically that for any of us, when we're operating in what we would refer to as fight flight mode, when we're highly anxious, actually we know that that unplugs the learning and the rational brain. And so, what happens for these young people that are feeling anxious is that they go to an environment where there is so much change and so much feels different that, you know, it might seem not rational to us as we look at it but actually they're not able to get beyond that and to make the changes that they need to for that to feel safe that's exactly it they don't feel safe and I think I'm not sure it's anyone's fault but obviously the messages have been for all of us to consider safety and to make sure we are staying safe and when you've been in your home for a period of time and then you go back out that's a natural concern you know I think those of us that have continued to go to work throughout. I think that's been really helpful. I remember the first time we had some social workers back in the building for a meeting. They were very twitchy about being in the building and that's adults that are able to process this stuff and understand how it works. So it's not surprising that um, young people that are already vulnerable are struggling
0: with that. So have you seen your young people also struggling more with social skills uh, just because they're out of practice?
3: It's tricky. I've seen some of the stuff in the media this week. Our young people struggle with social skills anyway, and that's why they're with us. And that's what we're working on with them. And we're working, you know, we are a small specialist setting, so we're set up to work on those things. But I don't think we should be surprised that young people are finding it difficult to adjust back to the routines of school I think all of us are finding it difficult to adjust back to routines and, and the reality is young people have been encouraged to use screens more than ever for the last year and now they're being told off for having increased their kind of use of screens and their addiction to that in a way. It is definitely something we have to address but I think, you know, we talk, we did some work with some young people recently. And, and actually one of them referred to her phone as her comfort blanket. And I think that's a, that's a reality. You know, for us, we, we talk about these objects that make us feel safe and make us feel comfortable. And for a lot of young people, that's their phone. Now, that's not a great answer and we probably need to work on how we change that. But that's the reality that's probably been kind of has increased through the last year because of what we faced.
0: And what sort of things would you find helpful from central government in terms of policy, funding and so on? Not just, I suppose, for for your direct work, but presumably for the schools that end up feeding uh, students, referring students to you. I
3: I think that schools are feeling under a lot of pressure with the number of students that are struggling to get back in. We're a specialist intervention service and and that costs money. And the reality is schools can't afford to send everyone that they probably feels need, you know, need that support at the moment. I think we are in a, it, it, you know, so much money has been spent, hasn't it, already in this scenario. And, and but I, I guess this is about spending now to see the benefits later. It's such a big question, isn't it? But I think schools are having to choose who they seek support for. And that is concerning because that means that some of the young people that need support are not currently able to get it. And it's how we come up with solutions, you know, and that doesn't have to be us. You know, maybe we need to be doing some outreach group work in schools. You know, there's lots of other ways to do that. But I think there needs to be some specialist support through funding or professionals available for schools so that they can support everyone that needs it to get back on track. I suppose one of the positives for us was uh, we felt like we built much stronger relationships with the families that we work with. And going back to... You know, initially needing to persuade them and ensure that they felt that they were sending their young people to a safe place, keeping regularly updated and then speaking to them. We actually found we were able to give support to, to those adults. Sometimes they would bring their young person to us. If they're a single parent working from home, we would be the only adult they got to speak to that week face to face and so they would drop off the young person and we would make a point of having a a five-minute conversation with them in the car park because they weren't allowed in the building and we found that some of them really needed that. Just a bit of a chat and a bit of a, you know, for us to be able to say to them, you're doing a great job. We were fortunate to have some emergency funding so we could sometimes provide a board game for the family to take home or an activity pack of, you know, popcorn and pizza for a weekend movie night. Just some opportunities to support them as families because I think you know, for lots of people, it it could feel very lonely and very cut off. And if the adult's mental health is is under pressure, then, of course, that affects how they're supporting their families.
0: The government insists that it has allocated billions in catch-up funding for children's education. But its own expert advisor on educational recovery, Sir Kevin Collins, quit earlier this year in disgust at what he saw as the failure to provide anything like enough money. He had argued for around £15 billion, but the government only shelled out £1.4 billion for its next phase of the catch-up plan. So what should ministers be doing? I brought together three educational giants. Lord Blunkett, who was Education Secretary in the Blair government, Rachel D'Souza, the Children's Commissioner for England, and Robert Halfen, the Chair of the Education Select Committee. I asked Rachel D'Souza first how bad the problem was. Rachel, you've been touring the country uh, talking to children about their experiences over the past year.
4: So, I've just finished the Big Ask Survey, the largest survey of children and young people in this country, which we launched uh, as a once in a generation review um, of the future of childhood because of the unique circumstances of lockdown. And uh, so, we've had half a million responses, and I personally have been to Luton, Bolton, Grimsby, Scunthorpe, Cumbria, Bristol, Gateshead and Manchester and talk to children right across this country, children in youth vending institutions, children in children's homes. So the whole spread, our responses come from every single area of this country and we've got about 8% of children's responses. So what are they telling us? So in terms of what they need now and i think that's it's really important we've asked them what they need now and what they need for successful and flourishing futures so the biggest and most overwhelming thing that i was surprised at, at how overwhelming it is was their concern about their own mental well-being and their mental health and that's huge and it's across every age group and it's right away. and it's 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 definitely the language they're using they're also concerned about their education they've missed 19 weeks there's an absolute massive desire for certainty among exam groups or those near examination periods for certainty about what exams are going to be like, what about the fact they've not been able to do things like work experience, and will that mean they can't get on their courses? Um, And the kids who've missed, they want to catch up, they're extremely concerned about not doing as well as perhaps others in other schools. Will they get the catch up they need? Really responsible. They are really interested in the curriculum, in skills, and skills for successful jobs. There is no lack of ambition coming out of England's children at the moment. I met the next Prime Minister, I met the next Elon Musk, but they want to know, will what I'm doing get me there? And how do I get there? They're slightly worried about, they're seeing older siblings, parents, struggling with work, and they really, you know, is it going to be okay for us? Family strain, some have had an incredibly difficult time and particularly more vulnerable children. We've got about 20% of children in this country with, with genuine concerns and that's where the family, a lot of the family strain issues are coming from. And their own communities, somewhere to go, things to do, lots of interest there. Some themes cut across, a real interest in fairness, equalities issues and bringing the whole generation with them, wanting to be successful, but wanting all their peers to be successful, but really a uh, uh, help us now, and then a big, big theme on, we want things to do now, places to go now, we want catch up, we want summer, we want help now, help now with our mental health.
0: Thank you so much for that. And Robert Halfen, do you see a similar sense of ambition from ministers as they try to work out how to tackle oh. this problem?
1: I think there's a recognition which is really important that there is and has been a huge problem because of the lockdown. I've described it as the four horsemen of the COVID apocalypse galloping towards our children in terms of lost learning, a mental health epidemic, a potential loss of lifetime earnings and safeguarding hazards as well. And I think now the government understand this. They've seen statistic after statistic that shows the damage that the school closures have done to children and what uh, i think needs to happen is that the government builds on what i call a hefty starter in terms of the catch up money the 3 billion and the 220 million that's spent on the holidays activities program builds on that and provides a main course in terms of a long term plan for schools and colleges that they use this opportunity to establish that long-term plan to look at real reform not just to deal with the damage from COVID but also uh, to look at the increasing problems of attainment the the disadvantage gap between uh, disadvantaged pupils and the better off peers has grown and it's by the time those pupils reach the age of 16 it's about 18 months the attainment gap and it's getting worse so we need to Address that we need to address social injustices in terms of the fact that there is not a level playing field for parents who have children with special educational needs and the problem of exclusions, um, but also to uh, perhaps transform our curriculum to make it much more that we are preparing children and pupils for the world of work. Um, not just uh, academic knowledge, which of course is is important. So the, the long-term plan should have a secure funding settlement, but actually should be quite radical in what it intends to do.
0: Lord Blunkett, what do you think ministers should be doing to help those children who Robert just mentioned, the ones who are falling the furthest behind and for whom the gap is widening as a result of the pandemic? Well, firstly,
5: I agree entirely with Robert about the curriculum and a different kind of vision for where we're going, rather than just reverting i think to pick up what rachel said children are individuals wonderful growing individuals and some of them will need quite intensive help and expanding the child and adolescent mental health services is not easy as is the building of capacity generally you've got to do it at speed but with with quality so i don't underestimate for a moment the the challenge here but for most youngsters the emotional hit and the insecurity will be dealt with by the extended day, by uh, weekend and uh, holiday uh, classes, by uh, support that needs to be brought in. There's a lot of goodwill and expertise out there that we could bring in that's not necessarily paid for in terms of those who have retired and, or or during the pandemic have decided that they don't want to do a full-time job anymore. I think there will be quite a lot of those who can devote a little bit of time in the end however it does need what uh, Robert described as a, a long-term plan and that long-term plan needs the buy-in from the whole of the government the lesson I learned 24 years ago was if the government was signed up to it as a whole and they knew the prime minister was they'd go along with it if you've got this which we've clearly seen between the treasury and the department for education a, a kind of turf wars and and you can't have what your your the recommendation from uh, Kevin Collins put forward, you end up with a mess and you need some medium to long-term certainty. I won't bang on about this, but if you're going to build that capacity, you're going to recruit the staff, not just teachers, but assistants and learning mentors and the like, you need to be able to set about it now. And you need to do so at a time when we're continuing to teach the children. In other words, we're trying to do what we're doing on a daily basis, including in further education, And we're trying to catch up at the same time. And I I think that is a very major challenge.
0: Rachel you've been asking for a modern day beverage for children just explain what that would do and how that would help children in particular following the pandemic yeah, and,
4: I, and I mean I work closely with Kevin on his plan and you know and I think we have some more things we can suggest too I mean when we started off with the big ass survey the plan is that we, we will then work on a childhood commission that will report hopefully by around Christmas time that brings together all the experts in the field you know in the key areas that children have identified so that we can put together a joined up strategic plan for children. Now I think uh, events are almost overtaking us and we're going to do that but there's a whole load of things we need to be doing now as well as getting that beverage spirit and doing some really brilliant joined up policy making for children. I use beverage because Second World War you know the nation could have been on its knees and instead we did some of our best policy thinking at that point you know foundations of the NHS education to age 15 we need a bit of that spirit now and we need to give back big for children i really believe we do i'm totally with david Blunkett's comment about the army of volunteers look there's so much we could be doing we should be having a summer of fun and activities because a lot of what what young people i was talking to sarah jane blakemore in oxford and saying what do teenagers need to recover you know how long have we got she's like a couple of years to get those brains right But what they need is really high quality peer relationships and to be doing things with their peers. That's what will prevent them from having serious mental health problems in 10 years time. There's a causal link here. So why aren't we doing taking all the psychology graduates um, who can't get jobs, training them up, put them in as counsellors in schools, we need fan, more family workers short term, we need you know, people working on attendance, let's roll out digital counselling, it's, it's cheap, it's easy, let's do it. So we should be doing all those smaller things now for the initial movement and then we need to be doing the big strategic planning. I totally agree with Robert, you know, we need a good plan for education, the kids are telling us you know they're really interested in vocational options work related studies that t- take more work related routes it what a great time a beverage moment to actually address the issues in education but also the the issues in health you know i've talked about health and mental health the family community community come out so strong from the young people places to go things to do you know let so, so going wider and around, so not just like staying in our in our ooh, education, da, 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 and actually thinking about the whole experience of children. Some joined up thinking. Let's have Robert as minister, cabinet minister for children. You know, or someone who's actually joining this up, joining this work up, and working with us to deliver it. I think we should be using our best brains, planning big for children now.
0: Robert, I do wonder whether there is the political capital as well as the political will to tackle this.
1: Of course things have been difficult in the department over the past year and everyone knows what's gone right and what's gone wrong but the emphasis that the Prime, And this is, I mean, going back to Lord Blunkett's point, this is coming from the Prime Minister in terms of the lifetime skills guarantee. So I'm excited about the skills agenda. I think the government is talking about skills and apprenticeships in a way that uh, um, a concerted government hasn't done for many years. And that potentially, I think, will make a difference. And I like the fact that the government is m- moving away from this uh, university, university, university uh, concept to skills, skills, skills. But in terms of schools... I do not understand why it is that the NHS can have a long term plan you, there's lots of push to have NHS volunteers for example during covid and yet education doesn't have a long term plan and a secure funding settlement and that is where I think that the priority political priorities it has to focus on as much on education as we do seem to focus on the economy and health, and I, I think there is a recognition from the Prime Minister by the fact that he appointed Sir Kevin Collins. Okay, it's ended badly, but the fact that he appointed such an individual and the plan was presented. I mean, I I've just literally come down from the House of Commons in the midst of an education debate, which I spoke and Nick Gibb, and uh, made very very big a uh, noise in the chamber today about a longer school day, and that the fact that the government was working on the evidence and the research and hope to unveil something by um, the spending review. So clearly some work is being done and, and the impact of Kevin Collins, whether he's there or not, I think is going to be felt for some time yet.
0: Lord Blunkett, do you think there are sufficient political heavyweights tackling this in government? You, you might not think there are sufficient political heavyweights in government at all, but I wonder what your impression of, of how ministers are approaching this is.
5: Well, whatever. I don't think we should allow any weakness, whether it's in the departmental's ability to punch its weight or across the cabinet, to get in the way of what we need to do. In other words, from the prime minister, the chancellor, across the whole government, we should say, never mind about the individuals, what are we going to do together to actually bring this to fruition? And that's where I do agree with Robert. I mean, I, I, I'm not so cautious as my own party about The extended school day, I was very strongly in favour of it when I was there at the Department of Education. We used lottery money as well as government money to have quite an ambitious extended day. It gradually morphed back into secondary school children, leaving as early as quarter to three in the afternoon. I'm not in favour of that. I think that what happens outside the classroom is as much a learning experience as what happens in. And that can be music, it can be arts, it can be sport. It can be people suddenly discovering something that turns them on, that actually means that in other areas of the curriculum, including, by the way, young people being volunteers themselves, I think we could use the National Citizen Service more creatively and imaginatively to do this. And, and I do agree with Robert about this, the the post-16 further education skills agenda, it's crazy at the moment to be clawing back money from further education colleges because they couldn 't recruit sufficient uh, students during the pandemic at a time when we should be reinvesting in further education. I shall say so on the second reading of the of the the bill um, next week because I believe really strongly that this could be the answer for those who are coming out of the formal education system ill prepared for the future and it 's not just an individual agenda this this is an agenda for the economy and the future of the nation. So we ought to be able to mobilise. I'll I'll leave this answer on this this issue. How can we together, including the opposition, mobilise the forces that we're just talking about? We're we're in agreement, the the three of us. Well, hopefully the four four of us, Isabel. We're in agreement about what needs to be done. There are I's to, uh, to be dotted and T's to be crossed, but we know what we want to do. Let's throw everything in behind it, as we did with the pandemic uh, and the health service and now with the vaccine rollout. If we could emulate that, then we'd give our children a real future.
0: The pandemic is far from over, but ministers hope that the days of school children having to learn over Zoom are long gone. But as Nadim Zahawi settles into his new job, he'll find he still has to work out how to stop COVID from being something that determines the course of many pupils' futures, rather than merely a strange episode in their past. That was the latest in the Aftershock series of podcasts looking at life after the pandemic. I'm Isabel Hardman. Thank you for listening.